Well, here we are celebrating Advent again. Praise God. We love Christmas time. And next uh, Sunday is Christmas Eve. And we've uh, been able to time things where we're starting the Gospel of Luke uh, to celebrate this Advent season. And all is well. But we have this little bit of a nagging issue in the back of, the mind, of our minds, knowing that we don't really know when Jesus was born. Uh, unlike uh, Easter and Good Friday, when we can estimate the, 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 at least the time of year, but certainly the, uh, the, the, uh, the date as well because of the movement of the moon and when we celebrate Passover, we don't know when Jesus was actually born. Various dates have been proposed over the centuries, January 2nd or 6th, March 21st or the 25th, April 18th, April 19th, May 20th or 28th, November 17th and the 20th. So we don't exactly know. Uh, but we do know that the church began to celebrate uh, December 25th uh, based on a chronology of a calendar in the year 354. Uh, and we estimate that at least in the Roman church, they were celebrating it, uh, December 25th as early as 336. Sextus Julius Africanus mentions the date uh, of December 25th as being the date of Jesus's birth because he thought the world was created on March 25th and therefore Jesus would have been born uh, conceived on March 25th so he must have been born on December 25th. Uh, sometimes these neat little packages come off as a little stiff. We don't really actually believe the world was, I mean how do you know the world was made on March 25th? I'm just glad it's not April 15th. So we have, we have this mixed tradition, but we in the West tend to celebrate on December 25th. In the Eastern Orthodox countries, they celebrate in January because they look more to the baptism and the coming of the Magi than to his actual nativity. So we don't know, but as one old commentator said, while December 25th is traditional, at least it is traditional. So we're sticking with December 25th. And what a wonderful time for us to look at this wonderful Christmas passage of Luke chapter 2 this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, with, it, with an awesome wonder, we just marvel uh, during this time of year that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's an incredible demonstration of your love that you would take on the frailty of a human body to live and to die for us. So let us not lose that Christmas magic, the awesome wonder of our Messiah, our Christ, who was born in abject poverty, who was rejected his entire life, but who proved that he was the Son of God by rising from the dead, and who reigns now, intercedes for us, and who is with us even at this moment in this room, seeking the glory received by his people. Bless us now, we pray, as we look at this precious text of Scripture, one we're so familiar with, and let that awesome wonder come back to us again in the reading and the preaching of your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Please again turn to, to Luke chapter 2. This may be one of those places in your Bible that's a little worn uh, because we love going back to it, and uh, I am just honored to be able to uh, to uh, preach on this text this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 this Lord's Day. And Lord's willing, we're going to look about the, uh, the context of the appearance of the shepherds. Verses 8 on next Lord's Day on Christmas Eve. Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. God says, Dr. Luke writes, 
Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. As we look at this text, we're going to look at uh, three different aspects here. We're going to see the decree of a king in verses 1 through 3, the duty of a father in verses 4 through 5, and the delivery of the king in verses 6 through 7. We start off here with an historical uh, decree here, and he starts off here, now in those days. You will recall when we began this, uh, this gospel, we looked at what an excellent uh, historian was Dr. Luke. He was extremely thorough, and his references have been validated by archaeological uh, concerns uh, for, for many centuries. He is considered among historians to be one of the best of his age. And as R.C. Sproul says, this story does not begin with the words, once upon a time. Because it is no fable. It's no fairy tale. Luke sets the narrative squarely in the context of real history. Now, if you're going to lie, you want to say once upon a time. You don't want to square it directly in history, which can be validated. But Luke's not interested in lying. He's interested in telling you the truth. And then we bring in this amazing character, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, it's important to know something about him. If for no other reason, the great contrast between that king and the king Messiah who is to be born. Gaius Octavius or Octavian. Uh, was the, uh, the great Caesar. He was grandnephew of Julius Caesar, heir to the imperial throne. He defeated Anthony and Cleopatra uh, in, uh, at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. Uh, after that, consent, the Roman Senate conferred the title of Augustus for the first time, which means majestic or highly uh, revered one. He was indeed an excellent Caesar, probably the best in all of Roman history. Because of his effective uh, administration, he was able to lead to the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. Uh, and indeed, the J temple of Janus was shut up because it is only used during time of war. And they were able to shut the doors and lock up the temple because there was no war in much of his reign. There's an element of truth to the boast that he made on his deathbed. I found Rome in brick and left it in marble. He was the most powerful man in the world. He was flattered by the Roman Senate as a son of God, hailed by the poet Virgil as the son of the divine, and he brought in a golden age. Octavian was so powerful, he achieved godlike status in the Roman Empire. An inscription found on a building in Hail uh, Carnassus hails him as the savior of the world. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and, and he is interested in expanding his kingdom, so he has a census. The censuses were conducted every 14 years for two purposes, taxation and enlistment into the military. Jews were exempt from enlistment into the military, so it was for taxes. 
It's always taxes, isn't it? <laughs> so he's looking for taxes here, did this, and uh, we have historical records of these sort of census. Matter of fact, we actually have a, an archaeological find from Egypt that shows a similar requirement to register in your hometown. Uh, it, this census might have been planned in five, uh, 8 B.C., but it probably happened uh, in 5 B.C. You know, Jesus wasn't born on zero he was actually born somewhere between 6 and 4 uh, B.C. Uh, and then the census, again, was for probably for taxation. And what you had to do is you had to go to your hometown where your, where your family was from in order to basically uh, register for a census within the family tree that you're having. And then uh, Luke doesn't leave it there. He also says this happened while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And they dated their dates based on their rulers. We do the same thing. What's this year? 2023 since what? I know Domine, since the beginning of our ruler, the year of our Lord. Now we see here a duty of the father in verses 4 through 5 here. The story of Joseph went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. You know, it's amazing. It's just two verses here about this amazing trek, but, the, but, but what was going on and what preceded this is just absolutely um, uh, history-making, right? Bethlehem, of course, means house of bread. It's amazing. The bread of life came from the house of bread. It's where Ruth gleaned in the fields and where David looked over the, the flocks. That's the hometown, of course, of David. The, both Mary and Joseph are of a household of David, so they had to go back to Bethlehem. Mary technically didn't have to go, but you're not going to leave them a wife who's nine months pregnant behind in Nazareth. So she went along with him and, and, uh, and was brave in that uh, difficult uh, passage. Kent Hughes describes it as this, Octavian's relentless arm stretched out to squeeze its tribute even in a tiny village at the far end of the Mediterranean. Thus it came about that at a village carpenter and his expectant teenage bride were forced to travel to his hometown to be registered for taxation. Why? Why? I mean, that's a trial, isn't it? We've had lots of women who've been pregnant in this. I, mean, I wouldn't want to ask them to go on donkey back or to go walk to a hometown for a registration. Well, there's a reason for it. Because there was a prophecy that said that Messiah had to come from Bethlehem. And because, uh, because of that, what God did is he moved Caesar to bring about this censor, census. The entire Mediterranean world... All of Europe, up to England, over to Libya, to the borders of Persia, was moving in this census so that this prophecy would be fulfilled in Micah chapter 5. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child, when the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. We well, think, well, that's probably written about David. Michael wrote hundreds of years after David. And this is, a, this is a ruler whose days are from eternity. He is a ruler who is both man born of a woman in Bethlehem and God. 
only Jesus Christ could fulfill, fulfill this. As John Piper says, God wields an empire for the sake of his little people. It's passages like this that help us not to question the love of God, no matter the difficulties that we go through. For him to go through all of that effort, all of the Caesar Augustus effort, all the census, all the travel and everything to fulfill this promise, he is going to fulfill his promise that he will bring you home to heaven. But the road may be difficult. R.C. Sproul says this, This decree is done in obedience to the decree that took place much earlier, even in eternity, when God decreed that his son would come into this world to do his work of redemption for his people. And that he would be born at a specific time, in the fullness of time, at a specific place in the village of Bethlehem. And for a specific mission, to save his people from their sins. Indeed, all the matters of life, even the movements of nations, are set forward for the well-being of God's people. And he's also establishing Christ's credentials. You might remember some of those credentials mentioned by the Apostle Paul in the writing of Romans, the greatest of all theological books in Scripture. Romans 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. And then what? Who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, you think about this, the great movement of God and how the entire Roman Empire was, was, it was in transit in order to fulfill this thing for this particular fact that Jesus would need to be born in Bethlehem. It's a source of encouragement but it makes us wonder sometimes as we go to this next passage, if God is so powerful and he's so deliberate about these things, how come he couldn't make a hotel reservation? Right? We ask ourselves those questions, right? If you're so loving and you're so powerful, how is it that I'm going through these difficulties? Remember and keep in mind who Jesus was. Jesus is, is, is appealing to the lowliest of the low, the brokenhearted and the meek. But he's also working on Joseph and Mary as he's going through this. He is growing them in character. I had a conversation with someone right before church. You know, uh, the fact is we all want to be dynamic, mature Christians. But the fact is this, that will not happen unless God crushes us. I look about some of the trials, and the temptations, the difficulties that many of you are going through. And I'm thinking, man, God has created some kind of holy church <laughs> because he is crushing a lot of us right now well take comfort put yourself in mary and joseph's sandals the difficulty that god was willing to do to show us the example of their of themselves and their their movements and what what god is doing with in human history he's also doing now and blessing us now we see here the delivery of the king in verses six through seven while they were there the days were completed for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That whole principle of no room in the inn is difficult for us to, to fully understand. When, when, when the word inn here probably means or could mean several things. It may mean a guest portion of a house of a relative. It would make sense they would go and stay with relatives here. 
Uh, it could mean an inn, but not like a hotel, like what we would be used to. You know, we sort of see this as a, you know, a tavern of old where they have rooms upstairs and all that kind of stuff. That, that's not what it meant. Based on the description that my understanding is, I, I, I kind of think of it as this. You ever been to a really big horse barn? like a nice place where they train horses and things like that. Think of that with kind of, you go into this open area with stalls all along the side. It's probably something like that, but without a roof in the center. And you would stay more or less in a stall that went out into an open area where all the, the animals would be fed. The innkeeper would basically give you a little corner, a little room in this stall, and he would give you a fire to be able to cook your meal on, and he would give, provide you with fodder for your animals, and that was it. Now, ain't one of us want to have a baby in a horse barn. But they didn't even get that. It was full. Some speculate it was full because of the census. Some think that maybe Romans who were there to take the census were taken up. Whatever it is, there was not even room in that nasty place. So what did they do? Well, one tradition says they went to a cave. Justin Martyr says this, since Joseph was be, uh, nowhere in the lodge, in the, I'm sorry, since Joseph had nowhere to lodge in that village, he lodged in a certain cave near the village. And while they were there, Mary brought forth the Messiah and laid him in a manger. Uh, Helena, Constantine's mother, built a church over that site, and that church still stands to this day. You can go into that church, and there is a 14-point a, a star that, that evidently, according to tradition, identifies the place where Jesus was born. Interesting, when the Muslims occupied and, and conquered that area of land, they were destroying all the Christian churches, and that one they didn't destroy because there was a mosaic on the side that showed, it, showed turbaned men on camels coming to that church. And the Muslims said, hey, they look like us. Let's not burn this building down. Who were the turbaned men? The three kings, the wise men. So art saved that building. <laughs> and you can go to it to this day. It goes all the way back to the, to the fourth century. So maybe it's a cave. Maybe it was one of these stall things. We don't know. Uh, it doesn't kind of matter. The point was no one wanted Mary and Joseph. No one wanted Jesus. And this was just the beginning of his ministry. Uh, providence so often proves to be inconvenient and uncomfortable. And yet the benefits of maturity in Christ are worth whatever we have to go through to get there. Matthew Henry says this, the ancient of days became an infant of about a span long. He experienced the, what we call the incarnation. The incarnation comes from the Latin term in, in, and then carnus, flesh. That it means to be embodied in the flesh. God himself took on human flesh. He began with no room in the inn, and his life ended with, we have no king but Caesar. The stable was the beginning of the road to the cross. Jesus was born as a baby because he did not just come to die, but also to live. There was a ruler uh, who used to dress up as a peasant and go out amongst his people. And then he kept being uh, you know, scolded for doing that because of the security threat. And he said, how can I rule my people if I don't live amongst them? One of the great heroes of our Christmas lore is good King Wenceslas. King Wenceslas of Bohemia would go out dressed up as a peasant and go out and deliver goods to poor people. How can he rule his people without being among them? Well, God said the same thing. I'm going to be among the people. I'm going to associate with the lowest of the low, this poorest of the poor. 
So, I mean, they, were, they already were poor. <laughs> they are already poor, and now he's been born in a cave. Guess what? The manger, you know, we have a pretty little manger over here. It's kind of a decoration. It's very attractive. You know, you know what the manger probably was? It was probably a hole dug out in the ground. That's what they would do. They would make a feeding trough there in the ground. What an amazing, amazing contrast between the mighty Augustus, Octavian, the war hero, the divine Augustus, and this poor little peasant child of a home builder. It reminds us of Philippians chapter 2. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The cross ended, in a sense, Jesus' earthly ministry, but he had been participating in cross-like events his entire life. Everything about the birth of the Messiah shouts obscurity, rejection, discomfort, humiliation. And we think about next week we'll look at the angel song, Glory to God in the Highest. The truth is, is that most people would have sung Glory to God in the Lowest. McKinley says this, The lowest circumstances of Jesus' birth show us that God's kingdom will come in ways that surprise and subvert our expectations about what true greatness and power really does look like. You said the baby Mary carried was not a Caesar, a man who would become God, but a far greater wonder, a true God who would become man. That's Christmas, folks. Don't ever lose the wonder of this. Don't ever lose the wonder of grace, love, the humiliation of Christ. Joseph and Mary uh, <clears throat> Capsulize the mystery of grace. The king does not come for the proud and the powerful, but to the poor and the powerless. McKinley summarizes, The irony is palpable for those who know where Luke's narrative is heading. The man recognized by the world as the king, Augustus, lived in a palace surrounded by opulence. This child's beginnings, however, could not have been more humble, but his kingdom far outstrips the glories of Rome. Caesar may have written the decree, but it was God who made it because he had you in mind. Father, we love you. We thank you for the power of the Christmas story. We get so anxious. We get so depressed. We get so overwhelmed by our lives. And we sometimes wonder, what are you doing? Where are you? If, if you would cause the in your providence, the kind of trials that Mary and Joseph went through for your glory and for our good, why would we think that we should have it any better? There's a little bit of prosperity theology in all of us, God. We're spoiled children. We thank you, God, you love us enough not to keep us that way. So in the midst of our trials, our difficulties, of the censuses that have been made before eternity, of what we are to go through. I pray, Lord God, that we would not ever stop exalting you and being grateful for the kingdom of God and worshiping the king. Bless us during this Advent season with these wonderful truths, truths and let them go deep into our hearts and to our minds. We pray in Christ's name.